Welcome to Starting Points, a Faith on Hill podcast. Starting Points goes through the whole Bible, Genesis through Revelation, and covering all of the major sections of the Bible. The goal is to be a starting or a restarting point to anyone's personal reading and study and engaging with the Bible, which we believe to be God's Word. Today we're going to be looking at one of the more misunderstood, um, uh, debated, embraced books of the Bible. It's a book that people can't even agree on the name. Either you know it as the Song of Solomon or as the Song of Songs, or if you want to get really cantankerous, you can call it the Canticle, uh, which is the Latin word for song um, or poem. And uh, there was apparently a, a move or a attempt at one point to have it referred to as the Canticle or the Canticle of Solomon, uh, which just sounds so pretentious. I'm glad that we didn't go with that one. Uh, it was written by King Solomon. You know, sometimes there's disagreement about who should be attributed as the author of a book of the Bible. Uh, this is not one of them. It's pretty well agreed that Solomon uh, wrote this, uh, and he likely wrote it as a young man. This is not Solomon of old age uh, reflecting back as with the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's not Solomon over the span of a lifetime as we get with the Proverbs. Uh, rather, it is Solomon as a young man, and he writes a fairly uh, epic work of fiction. Now, just because what Solomon is writing might be fiction, it doesn't mean that it's not valid uh, for the, our study and its inclusion in the Word of God. So Solomon not only wrote it, but he kind of included himself as one of the main characters. You know, I'm in this weird place where I kind of sit on the edge at age 41. You know, I'm still young. I have a, a younger view of things relative to, you know, many of my, my peers in pastoral ministry. The average age of a pastor in America right now is like 57, I think. Uh, and at the same time, while I might be far younger by almost 20 years than the average pastor, uh, no actual young person thinks I'm young. Um, so I kind of sit in the middle. And the old guy part of me... Um, you know, kind of wants to, uh, you know, get a little cantankerous about these things um, and say, oh, you know, of course it was, you know, a young guy included himself as the main character. Um, but, you know, he's far from the first author to have done so. Um, kind of makes me think of another very prolific author of more recent times, which Winston Churchill, um, where Winston Churchill's first written work was, was fiction, and then actually later in a book of fiction he wrote called Savarola, he likely included himself as the main character in all but name. Um, so there's some similarities there. And then, of course, Churchill went on to, aside from, you know, fighting Hitler, he, uh, he also wrote a lot of books. And uh, so, you know, you get, you get Solomon in the Bible at different points in his life. Old Solomon, young Solomon, just, you know, if you go with Churchill, it's the same thing. Anyway, uh, so... There's an interesting thing about this. One of my favorite Bible commentators, in fact, I've said before, and I'll say it again, he's my favorite living Bible commentator, is David Guzig. Uh, you can find his stuff at EnduringWord.com. Uh, I'm a, I'm a massive fan of his Bible teaching and his Bible commentaries, both of which are found at that website. Um, and he said this, if Song of Solomon was not in our Bible and we were to discover it as an ancient document 
from the time of Solomon, it is unlikely that we would choose to include it in the collection of the Old Testament books. Dennis Kinlaw, who is not living, passed away a few years ago, but is a highly respected theologian, was a university professor at Asbury Seminary. Uh, He says this, If the manuscript of this book were to be found alone, detached from biblical context and tradition, it undoubtedly would be viewed as secular. The book has no obvious religious content. And yet, God chose to include the book. And not just any book, but a book that is about love and romance and sex. God chose to include it in the scripture. And God's people received it as such. Now that is telling. It's telling about a couple things. It's telling about Kinlaw, his perspective, and his perspective is not in isolation. His view that a book about love and romance and sex has no obvious religious context, I think far from it. The idea that something poetic, creative, something that is quite honestly meant to be staged as a play uh, couldn't be included in Holy Scripture, I think shows a narrow view of what God does and who he uses and what is possible to be used as his word. There are those who would prefer that art, creativity, passion be excluded from religious life, be excluded from the sacred. That is the lesser, that is the common, and yet God chose to put in the sacred a poetic form, a dramatic presentation about very human things, things that some might call base, God brings and places with the sacred. I don't think we should overlook that. And I don't mean to call out either Kinlaw or Guzik. I'm a big fan of both, and I respect both men, and I'm thankful for their contributions. But they are mild in compared to how some view this book, as we will get to a little bit when we get into the landmines. Now, the book is... Uh, It is a dramatic story. Chapter one uh, opens uh, with the, the, the bride, the character of the bride, and she is in Jerusalem, but she is recounting how the story started. It's actually incredibly modern in that way where, you know, it starts and then it's like three years earlier and it flashes back and then brings us up to date with how this woman got to Jerusalem and found herself in the situation that she's in. And out in the hill country of Ephraim, her family is poor, they are impoverished, and they work this vineyard. They are poor farmers working this vineyard, but it's not even one that they own. They don't own their own land. They're working for a, a, you know, they're tenants. and, uh, and, and so they, they're there, impoverished and poor, and she sees this shepherd. And the shepherd seems to not have a lot of sheep. He seems to kind of be out of place, but, but she is just in love with him. She falls in love. Her and the shepherd are, are passionate. And then he goes away, and she hears that the king is coming, Solomon. And she's like, oh, okay, okay, cool. And she goes about her work. She's, where's my shepherd? Where is my shepherd? And then it turns out, it turns out that Solomon is the shepherd. He owned the vineyard and he had gone out in the story. Now, whether this is real or not is a debated point. There are those who think that this is a fictionalized or dramatized version of something that really happened. Um, Whether that is true or not, I do not know. And I don't have a strong opinion. I don't think it matters to the story. 
The, the, the idea of the story is that Solomon, you know, maybe he's, he's let out this vineyard, he knows about it, and he's just checking on his properties, and he's kind of going in disguise as a shepherd, um, you know, to, to kind of see, you know, what's happening in his properties. It's like an undercover boss situation. But while he's there, he falls in love with this girl uh, whose family works one of his vineyards. And so he, he goes away, prepares things, and then comes back, and he's the king. He's in his, you know, he's in his royal regalia. And she's like, whoa, okay. This is, uh, this is like, I can think of like 10 Disney Channel movies that is basically this story. Um, and then in chapter two, she's in the palace. And, and in chapter three, her, her groom is away and she's dreaming about him. And then she, it says that she's like, she misses him so much. She's just wandering through the city looking for him. And at last she finds him. Chapter four is a love song that the groom sings to her. Uh, chapter five, um, it's unclear, you know, in the narrative to me anyway, whether they're married yet or not, but the groom kind of comes in the middle of the night and knocking at her door and she's like kind of reluctant to let him in and then he leaves and it talks about her hands dripping with myrrh. And I, you know, who knows for sure, but but supposedly there was this tradition of, uh, you know, you would come and you would, um, you would kind of drench the, these doors in fragrance. And so then in the morning, you know, you'd wake up and know that the, your suitor, the the young man who was courting you had come because all of a sudden you're like, wait, why does my hand smell like myrrh or these, these fragrances? And it's because in the middle of the night he came and it's sort of like a, hey, I really like you, a secret admirer sort of thing. And so uh, she that happens. And then um, in chapter six, um, there's these, this sort of a chorus. It's almost like a Greek chorus, but it's written far before that was a thing. But the, um, the brides, the, the community around her are kind of skeptical. Like, is this real? This peasant girl and the king, is this a real thing? And then they're kind of convinced that they really do love each other, that it's real. And they start to rejoice. Um, and then the, it says the daughters of Jerusalem praise the beauty of the bride. And then chapter eight, the song concludes. They're in love with each other. It's, it's beautiful. Everybody's happy. And that's how the, the story goes. Now, one of the questions we always ask on this podcast is where's the human story? Now, the story of a poor family and rags to riches, it's Cinderella, um, you know, this whole thing, it's very human. It's, it, it exists kind of throughout human literature. Uh, this is a general, like, universal situation of love and youth and passion and, uh, you know, all of these things happening. There's also an interplay with this, the community. The, they're, they're sometimes referred to as the friends, the daughters of Jerusalem, uh, these, these community that's surrounding them. And they're both skeptical of their love and they're also rejoicing in it. And that's not, und- I mean, good night. I, I remember um, Angie, my wife, and I, when we first started dating, um, it was literally like the night of or the day after we had gone on like our first official date and, um, we'd been hanging out for a while, but it wasn't like we weren't really telling anybody. And then, you know, but she wouldn't let me take her on an official date, like where I paid. And so finally, I, I think I'd proven myself or whatever. And so we went on an official date and then like either that night or the next night, uh, we were over, uh, watching, we were gonna watch a movie and, uh, uh one of our friends was there too. And, um, Angie like got up to make popcorn or something. And this friend of ours, she looked at me and she goes, Adam, you just got to give it up. It'll never happen. Stop trying. She is not into you. And I had literally just gone on our first date like that morning. Right. But there was skepticism. And then that friend was, you know, 
in the wedding party a year later and, and rejoicing with us. So I resonate a lot with this personally. Uh, there's the love between a young couple. Or, or new love, you know, I mean, even if you're an older couple, but just kind of fresh and it's exciting. So this is universally understood. There's also the temptation to do things out of order. You know, I don't know who came up with this idea originally. The person I heard it from sure didn't. They took it from somebody else. But there's a paradigm in our culture that we human beings in general, and this is certainly true in America, they treat sex as either God, as a gift, or as gross. And that's the three main ways that human beings treat sex. Either sex is deified, it's worshipped, it's, it's celebrated in, in a sort of an idolic way. You know, sex is an idol that we worship the same as someone might worship fame, career, money, celebrity, whatever. And sex is the highest goal to be satisfied, to be embraced. Everything is about sex, sex, sex. And it's like that, that joke from The Office, you know, where I forget if it's Dwight or Michael, they yell out, sex! And then while, while I have your attention, and then they start the meeting. We have, we have this kind of worship, this, this glorification of sex. It's in our media, it's in our literature, it's in our discourse, it's everywhere. Then there's the people that see it as gross. You know, sex is disgusting. We should be hidden away. It should never be talked about. This is that sort of puritanical uh, Victorian view of, of sex that it's, it's to be hidden. It's, it's gross. There are actually like uh, books written for young women who are about to get married that basically say like it's this thing that nobody likes. You just got to put up with it. Um, it. It's, you know, you should be ashamed of your sexuality. Um, the fact that like a young couple are passionate about each other is something that should be hidden. It should be repressed. So there's either glorifying sex and, and, and making it like a god or there's, or there's shaming sex and making it gross and dirty and something we shouldn't touch. I take the middle ground. Sex is a gift from God. Love, human love, and I mean romantic, passionate, erotic love, is a gift from God in the right context. You know, um, between, between a husband and a wife, it's a beautiful thing. God designed human beings to have sex and to be sexual creatures and to be active in the right context. So this gets messy, though, because so much of the church is influenced, especially the Western church, is influenced by a sort of a shame, guilt culture, puritanical, Victorian, sex is gross, don't talk about it. And then sort of in a reactionary, even rebellious way, some Christians, and when I was in, you know, younger in my teens and 20s, this was really common, where, where some churches, they, they like reacted the other way and then they're like, Song of Solomon's all about sex and it's nothing about anything else. And, and, and it was almost like they were just trying to shock everybody with how like cool they could be with talking about these things. I tend to think the middle ground. The Song of Solomon is not shocking. It's not salacious, but it is sexual. And it does talk about these things. And that's where you get into the landmines. Is this an allegory of Jesus and his church, or is it only about human love? Uh, you know, that, that's the big debate. So many of the Bible commentators who I appreciate and enjoy, so many of the theologians who I read regularly, are totally useless on the book of, of, of Song of Songs because they can't accept the idea that when it talks about two young people just being in love with each other, that that's really what it means. Uh, they, they, everything has to be allegorized. Everything has to be, you know, about, about Jesus and the church, even if 
a reading of it says, no, it's about two young people in love. At the same time, the Bible uses repeatedly and often the picture of marriage. God, the Father, and Israel, the, the wayward wife that he was always trying to call back to him. Jesus and the church, the, the pure bride of Christ, as we studied recently on Sunday mornings in the book of the Revelation. This metaphor is used repeatedly and often. Even Paul in in Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, he's teaching about marriage, but then he says, like, really, ultimately, I'm speaking about Jesus and the church. I take the both and approach when it comes to allegory and literalism. It is literally, in its original intent, a, a romantic epic of literature, of poetry, of drama. It is also pointing us to Jesus. Now, there's a lot of stuff that you hear about this. Like, one thing I've heard for years is that Jewish men were not allowed to read Song of Solomon until they were 30 years old. It was so hot and heavy for their time. Uh, None of us would read it and go, ooh, that's hot stuff. But for their time, right, that was considered so adult that they weren't allowed to read it until they were 30. I looked this up. This kind of did a a Snopes or a Mythbusters on this. Um, There are writers who allude to this. However, it is poorly documented, and I was never able to find a Jewish source who could back it up. I did find early church fathers who recommended that in the instruction of young people in the scripture, that Song of Solomon be left towards the last. They also included some other books that dealt with more adult topics, and they recommended those be included in the last. And that's reasonable, by the way. I mean, we there's things that we don't talk about in kids' church. Um, you know, some, some of the really intense parts of the Bible, they get left out for the little kids until they're older and able to understand it. And I don't just mean about sex, but also violence and uh, uh, let's call it adult topics. And so that's fair. I mean, it's one of the reasons we don't ban kids from being in church on Sunday morning. But I also strongly encourage people to have their kids in kids' church so that I have the freedom, or whoever's preaching has the freedom to talk about more adult topics uh, so that kids aren't going, what, what, you know? Anyway, another landmine, is this book sexually explicit? Remember I said a minute ago that there were churches who were trying to be shocking and salacious. I believe that it could be. There are those who have a reading that's considered controversial, I would say currently over the last 20 years, that some of the things um, where it talks about like, you know, pomegranates and sheep and towers and all these things that are used to describe the human body, that these are sort of like tongue in cheek or thinly veiled allusions to intimacy between a, a man and a woman. And that it's not, you know, just oh, they really love each other, but it's literally describing uh, a couple engaging in intimacy. And, and I don't just mean like, oh, you know, over there, you know how like they used to do it in movies. Like now they, they show everything or whatever, but like it used to be that like, you know, they'd have a passionate embrace and then it would like fade off and cut to the next scene. No, like it, it's like, uh, you know, one of these HBO shows where like, according to these, these modern, you know, commentators, they're arguing that, that these are thinly veiled allusions to, to specific acts and, and practices. I don't know. I don't think we should be afraid. That's the sex is gross thing. I do think that many who have embraced it within the church, this idea that the Song of Solomon is, is explicit, I think those people 
are leaning into the sex is God thing. And so I want to be careful either way. Now, there are some weird things in it, like uh, at some points, like the bride says, I wish you were my brother so I could kiss you in public. And it's like, and then he refers to her as sister and is like, what's going on with all this brother-sister talk? There's cultural differences. In their culture, you could not kiss or show affection publicly if you were married, but she's like really excited and really into him. And she's like, I just want to kiss you, but we're in public and I can't. But if you were my brother, I'd be allowed to. And she's just kind of pointing out this weird cultural inconsistency. And, and you know, um, it, like I remember uh, years ago, one of the, President Bush, I think, was holding hands with like one of the princes from Saudi Arabia and people were like, what's going on? Because culturally in, in Saudi culture, two men hold hands together is a sign of friendship, but in our culture, holding hands is, is a sign of, of intimacy or affection in a romantic way. Uh, and so there are these cultural differences. What about this whole thing about like your, your teeth are like this, your, your neck is like that, your, your breasts are like this, and like there's all this body part comparison. Again, I I'm, I'm, wouldn't be a big fan of it in our culture because I don't like the idea of, of making big deals out of people's bodies. I think there's a lot of baggage with that, but I also recognize we're in different cultures. Now, where is Jesus seen? Remember, I'm both and. So I think that it's reasonable for Christians since the marriage uh, picture has been used of Christ in the church multiple times in the New Testament. You could see in chapter five, verse six, the bride is waiting for the groom, but he's gone to look for lost sheep. You can see Jesus going to look for lost sheep. Uh, in, in chapter uh, 5, uh, verse 9, she meets people in Jerusalem who are skeptical of the groom. They're like, are you sure? Are you sure? And, and her, her testimony to them convinces them that the groom is not like other dudes. And in the same way, as we testify of Jesus, oh, isn't Jesus just another religious leader? He's just another prophet? He's just another enlightened teacher? No, he's different. And she knows this because she knows him. And, and, it, and it, so much so that in the next chapter, those same people who were skeptical are now excited and, and part of this and, and praising what's going on. They've been converted. Now, I don't believe that I will be married to Jesus. And I, I'm thankful that largely this kind of teaching has gone away, but it was very prevalent in the 90s and the 2000s. This is coming up in the church I would hear people talk about like, we're going to have a honeymoon with Jesus. And it, was, it would get very personalized. I've talked about this before. I think this goes back to this idea of collective versus individual. Americans are very individualistic people. We have a personal faith, but we are saved into a collective, a community, a family. Uh, Eastern thought, and I mean that not in the sense of like China, but like Eastern Orthodox uh, you know, what we would think of now as like uh, the Middle East or Persia. Uh, the, the Eastern Orthodox Church sees that Jesus is connected to the church. And so the church is saved. And if you're part of the church, then you're saved. It's not individual. It's all collective. And I think they're mistaken in that emphasis. But the same way that some, uh, especially American or Western Protestants, are mistaken in overemphasizing individualism and ignoring the collective or the community. So I don't think that literally we'll be married to Jesus, but I do think that Jesus has sought after his bride, the church, and we are part of the church collectively. And Jesus has sought after us and cares about us and is seeking after us. The, the book of Song of Solomon is worth your reading. If you're, if you're somebody who enjoys literature, if you're somebody who enjoys art and creativity, it is a fantastic 
work of all of those things. But it's also one that reminds me that Jesus came and sought and, and came after us. And we were kind of unaware, like, what's going on? And then out of nowhere, Jesus shows up and says, hey, I want to bring you into my palace. I want to bring you into my kingdom. And we're going, who are we? We're nobodies. We're not, we're not royalty. And Jesus says, I want to make you that because of his great love for his people. I want to thank you for joining us for another episode of Starting Points. I know that the Song of Solomon, like I said, it's a book that's so divisive they can't even agree on the name. So any questions, conversations, reach out, engage. My, my email is adam at faithonhill.com. New episodes are released on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Video versions are available on our YouTube and Facebook. You can follow us at Faith on Hill on social media. And we gather together on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person, as we worship Jesus together as a church family. God bless you. We'll see you next time on the Starting Points Podcast.